0: I always said when I was president that when people would ask me what keeps you up, at night, I would always say finances and the behavior of 18 to 22-year-olds.
1: This month on Ebb and Flow, it's back-to-school season as we explore the enormous challenges facing institutions of higher education and their students at the start of a unique 2020 fall semester. We're joined by an expert at the heart of this discussion, namely Walter Harrison, President Emeritus of the University of Hartford, member of the Board of Trustees for Trinity College, and also a member of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. We'll speak with Walt about his work advising colleges and universities across the country on if, when, and how to open campuses safely in this age of COVID-19. I'm Paul Leeming of UBS Long River Wealth Management. Welcome to the September edition of Ebb and Flow. Walt Harrison, welcome, and thanks for being here.
0: It's my pleasure. Great to be with you.
1: So, Walt, I touched at a high level on your experience in the intro, but there is so much more that you have done in your career as it relates to higher education and sports and nonprofit work. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind elaborating a bit on this.
0: I uh, was born and raised in Pittsburgh and came to Hartford, Connecticut to attend Trinity College as a freshman in 1964. I graduated from Trinity with a bachelor's in English and went to the University of Michigan to get a master's degree where I got something even better. I met my wife. (laughs) This was during the Vietnam War. I had been in ROTC in undergraduate school, so then I had to go into the United States Air Force. I served For three years as a personnel officer, and for about half that time, I was a death notification officer, which meant I had to go around and tell people that their sons or husbands had been killed in Vietnam. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. But it taught me a lot about the value of self-discipline, and it taught me a lot about the dignity of human life and the uh, compassion that people can have. Then, uh, as soon as I could, I I got out, and I went back to graduate school. My wife had already enrolled at the University of California, Davis. By then, I was stationed in Sacramento, and so I decided I would just follow her and go to to graduate school, starting a pattern of what our married life has been like for 50 (laughs) years. So we went to Davis and completed our PhDs, and I, at the very end of my time as a graduate student, I got a teaching job at Johannes Gutenberg University in uh, Mainz, Germany. I was there for a year teaching American Studies, and then I returned to the United States, finished my dissertation, and we both got teaching jobs at Iowa State University, Mm -hmm. taught there for two years, went to Colorado College. Both of us are English professors. Diane taught at a prep school called Fountain Valley School in Colorado Springs, while I was at Colorado College. And then I went from there, a brief stint of being a consultant to colleges and universities around the country went to the University of Michigan, where I was both an English professor and vice president for university relations for nine years, and to the point of our conversation, for part of that time, most of that time, the athletic department reported through me to the president, so I had a firsthand knowledge of how a major athletic program in this country works. And then I came to the University of Hartford, where I was president for 19 years. I have always believed in the value of serving others, so in addition to being president, I started joining not-for-profit boards in the Hartford area. Currently, I serve on eight of them, and three of them are educational institutions, Trinity College, my alma mater, Suffield Academy, just north of Hartford, and then Fountain Valley School, where Diane taught all those many years ago. So I have a lot of experience in uh, education and higher education, and I have a considerable amount of experience with other not-for-profits, like, for example, the Hartford stage. I also chair the board of St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, so I'm pretty involved with a wide range of not-for-profits as a board
1: member. I am now even more surprised that I was able to secure a half an hour of your time today to record this. <laughs> but that is a that is a um, great deal of worth. Ways
0: to do it, and I can tell you this: it's a lot less time consuming and a lot less stressful to be a board member than it is to be a president.
1: I, I can only imagine. I can only imagine.
0: So I'm enjoying my retirement. I should have mentioned also that I have served since uh, 2000. 15 on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, and I co chair the committee that studied reopening schools and reopening athletics.
1: Okay, well, all that I have a lot of experience, all that pales next to the great accomplishment of 50 years of marriage. So, I will congratulate you there first. But now, now we will shift back to the topic at hand, which is, of course, reopening schools. And what are some of the central points of debate as we speak today? And what is the prevailing thinking on the broad question of how to open institutions of higher learning?
0: I've always said that one of... Well, I've said two things the whole time I was president. One of them was that one of the great advantages of higher education in the United States is it's not centralized and not uniform. So you've got just under 3,000 different institutions in this country, about 2,000 of them are four-year colleges and universities, They all serve have different models, serve different kinds of communities, serve different kinds of families and students. And then if you head into that, independent schools, there are even more. And I think all of them are making different decisions based on a whole lot of different situations they find themselves in. And I'll just run through a couple of them. My point here is just that there is no central thinking about it, other than, I guess, you would say, They want to keep their students, faculty, and staff safe as best they can. They can't ensure it, but they can do everything they can to make it possible. And I think there are a variety of approaches, and the approaches reflect the following things. First of all, where are we located and what is the condition of the pandemic in the state or community that we live in? Hmm. So it's a lot different if you're at, say, Colgate University and upstate New York than if you're at NYU in New York City, Mm. or you get the point. If you're in a rural area where there's relatively less of the coronavirus, you have a different situation than you would in a city that's heavily and where people look very close together. So just if you multiply that by 2,000, you get a whole lot of different approaches. It is also very different if you are largely residential college or university, the way Colgate would be, I hate to pick on Colgate, but it's a good example of a rural sure. institution, than it would be at, say, DePaul University in Chicago, which is right in the middle of downtown Chicago, has no essential campus. The buildings are right on the street with all sorts of other things. Almost all, they do have some residential halls, but the vast majority of their students either live in apartments or commute from home. And those just are different. They have different approaches for different schools. And so you'll see some schools, and of course, some schools have, University of Central Florida, I believe, has 75,000 students. And that, you can go all the way down to colleges that might have 1,000 students. So all of these things are different, and everybody's approaching it in different ways. They're all using the same general tactics if they're going to be in residence but there's a substantial number of institutions who have already decided they're not going to do anything in residence. Hmm. There are a number who I'd say most of them are doing a hybrid model where either a student can remain at home entirely and do long distance learning or can be on campus and do learning remotely for entirely or in some most cases it's partially hybrid it's a hybrid model but partially in person and partially online. But there's no central. There's no central approach. There are different approaches, and we've seen in some universities that their initial approach didn't work, and so places like Notre Dame, who had opened up, had to shut down again and go online. So, yeah, I mean, I just don't think there's a central approach. There's a variety of approaches that share some common.
1: So the, then, my next question yeah. might be tricky to answer, given this kind of heterogeneous, um, you know, environment you, you've described. But are there projections in terms of how this may go? In finance, we think of these as you know base case, upside, downside scenarios. But how would you define these in the context of opening universities and colleges?
0: You know, your colleague, Andrew Worthington, pointed out to me that higher education is a bit like investing these days. If you knew the answers to what was coming ahead, you, you would certainly and know exactly how to act and since none of us in higher education know what's going to happen with the pandemic or how 18 to 22 year olds will act we have our plans but then we have fallback plans and most of the fallback plans involve going to online learning i'd say the general model i'll tell you what i think the general model is and that there's so many varieties so as i said earlier. Some universities are just starting online and they're going to continue that way until they feel there's a low enough risk level that they can come back to campus. They don't feel that they are now. But I think I'm just going to generalize broadly, and I I should say I've read probably 30 different college and university and prep school plans, so they're different in a lot of ways. But here are some central things. All of them involve testing at some level. Some are doing testing the entire student body and the faculty and the staff, Trinity Colleges. That way, everyone will get a test once a week. Some of them are doing kind of random testing, doing, say, 12.5% or 10% of people. This is something similar to what the New York City Public Schools announced yesterday. They're trying that approach. But I would say every school I know of has some form of testing, and some of that depends on the size of the school, a school like. Trinity with about two thousand students can test everybody, a school like the University of Central Florida with seventy five thousand camp. Right. So they are doing, you know, different approaches. But it's there's testing involved, there's contract tracing involved. But that's a little complicated on a college and university campus because there's so many people in a residence hall and so many people in a classroom and so many people in a library and so forth. Even though you're controlling those spaces for numbers and keeping people socially distanced and the like, it's going to be a little hard to trace where they've been and who they've seen. There is that effort being made. I'm not sure. I think none of us are sure how successful it will be, but we're giving it our best effort. And almost all of the school's are talking pretty honestly with their students about what the students are going to have to do to be part of this effort, meaning that they're going to have to be socially distanced, wear masks, unless they are in their room by themselves. A lot of the things that we associate with colleges are not going to happen. Take a very basic thing most places are not opening the cafeterias, mm-hmm. um, some are, a few are, and they're they're giving students times that they can come lunch, like some might come at 11 and some 12 and some 1 and so forth, but most of them are saying, we're going to give you a box lunch or we're going to deliver the meal to your room or whatever. And the whole question of fraternities is very complicated, but as much as we can, I think most colleges and universities are trying to control, especially the social life of fraternities and sororities. And Again, how successful we'll be, we don't know. The third thing I would say is that most schools that I know of, not all schools, but most schools have redesigned their academic year. I'll uh, use Trinity as an example, but I know the University of Hartford is following something similar. They are going to have a, uh, and so are a lot of other schools, they are going to have a shorter fall semester that begins, you and I are speaking at the beginning of September, so it begins. it's beginning now, and it will end at Thanksgiving. And then students will return to their homes. I want to put an asterisk next to homes for a minute, but they're going to return to their homes. And then the winter term will be entirely remote. The theory being that's the most, that might be, because course, we don't know about this pandemic, but that might be the most contagious period of a highly contagious coronavirus at any rate. But they won't be in, in session in person between the end of November and the beginning of March. They'll be entirely online. Then a short spring semester from the beginning of March till the end of May. And then there will be two summer sessions. So students can spread their credits across all those uh, periods if they want. So as, and just as an example, the student might take three courses instead of the usual four courses in the fall, two courses in the winter, and three courses in the spring that gets eight, which would be the equivalent of four and four. Hmm. But you might also decide you're only going to do two courses in the fall, one course in the winter, three courses in the spring, which would leave you to two courses you could take during the summer. Hmm. And all of that will count as one academic year, so you're not penalized for that. And they're spreading out their tuition payments to cover all of that. So that is a typical approach, but not the only approach. There are a lot of other ones. Within that curricular structure, you're allowed to pick certain courses online and some in person, depending on what you want to do. The other important thing is it's true of all levels of education in public schools. There's been a lot of discussion of this as well. Teachers, professors tend to be older, and some have conditions that might preclude them from being in a classroom. So, every school I know is allowing, with various conditions, some, at some institutions, the faculty member has to certify that she or he has a certain kind of precondition or is older than 65. Mm. Other schools, anyone can elect to do this, but if you meet the criteria for electing to do it or if everyone's allowed to do it, you can then pick, you can choose to teach remotely if you wish.
1: As you were speaking, I was thinking about, you started by talking about the unknowns, and you mentioned that Andrew Worthington, my partner, and and, and we had a conversation ahead of this call, and he would made that comparison to the unknowns of investing through COVID. So many unknowns, investing where this disease will go, how it'll be transmitted, whether or not there'll be a vaccine, so lots of unknowns. But there is one known here, and, and you know, forgive me for saying this, but the known is that college students will be college students, 20-whatever-year-olds, 20-whatever-year-olds. Really, and I wonder if all of these plans that you've read and, and those being prepared account for the almost certain scenario where kids will not adhere to some of these safety measures being set up. So can you talk about how schools are preparing for this or already handling this in terms of discipline and other measures?
0: yeah so they're trying. I would say that they're meeting already with very, very mixed results. I always said when I was President when people would ask me what keeps you up at night, I would always say finances and the behavior of eighteen to twenty two year olds and Greg Woodward, my successor at the University of Hartford, pointed out to me that that's those two things are intricately related right now. Mm the behavior of those 18- to 22-year-olds is going to have a huge effect on college finances. So people realize that. Trinity's taken the approach of uh, requiring students to sign a kind of pledge. Other universities, the larger universities, can't really do that very effectively. But everyone's trying. They've got a lot of education for students, catchy phrases. Trinity's phrases protect the nest because Trinity are... The uh, athletic teams are called Bantams, so protecting the nest. I'm sure various colleges and universities have their own phrases. Uh, I'm trying to remember what Kentucky's is right now, but they all have some kind of education for students and some kind of rallying. That Some institutions have doubled the numbers of resident advisors they have to try to keep better track of what students are doing. It's too early to tell whether that'll be successful or not. It's an interesting idea. I think Mm. the University of Hartford is doing that. Some universities have, especially the ones that are largely residential, have rearranged their living conditions to only have one student per room. Not all universities can do that. And as I said earlier, one of the big variables is some universities are largely non-residential, and there you can't have as much control over your students. I think, you know, if you're just asking me, do I think we're going to be successful at having students follow directions? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I just remember my, my own experience as an 18 to 22-year-old. When I arrived at Trinity my freshman year, the college decided they would no longer allow anyone to have alcohol on campus. I was one of the many people who protested against this and marched to the state capitol for some reason that I cannot understand now, (laughs) uh, chanting, we want booze. You know, I remember that. I remember what it was like. I didn't really, I questioned, I more than questioned authority. I rebelled against it. I think that's probably going to happen here. People that age generally think they're invulnerable. And I'm afraid we already have evidence of of fraternity parties that have become super spreader events. And sure. The like the university of Alabama and elsewhere. I think everybody's doing their best. Not only because I think there are two things at play here for a college leader. One is you believe that the best way you educate students is in residence. I mean, I think that's a core belief that most of us have. I'm not arguing that you cannot be successful online, but I think most universities believe they're more successful in residence. And then secondly, our business model depends on being in residence. so if you know if we're not as successful at this, it's going to cause a it's already caused a considerable amount of financial pain. College and universities will be even worse if we fail.
1: Can you expand on the the financial pain a bit? I mean, when you think about it simply maybe at the simplest level, I mean admissions is no doubt impacted. certainly the the international student community, which is presumably for a lot of schools an important part of. Of, of a source of revenue how is this impacting the, the revenue of schools
0: well the two most important things you, you put your finger on one is international students unless they stayed in this country they aren't coming back right now most colleges and universities have made arrangements for them to study remotely in one way or another trinity for instance has made a deal with a chinese university so that its students can go there they vote they trinity had sent students for study abroad to that university so they had a lot of relationships there. They've arranged for them to stay in a. the Chinese students who are Trinity students to stay in in a certain residence hall. They will take classes with professors who have already been uh, accredited essentially by Trinity. So there's that kind of intricate relationship that then in a lot of places most places I would say international students will be studying remotely they just can't get back in this country even if they wanted to no one knows when they will do when that will have everybody hopes that by the the next calendar year that might be allowed but right now it's that's one of the unknowns so that's a that's a big impact those students provide a lot of funds and room and board and so forth so that that's already hurting even if they're still paying tuition and then the second thing that's happening is fewer students are coming back to schools there was a a survey done by Simpson Scarborough, which is a marketing uh, consulting group for college and universities, that found that maybe as many as 40% of university and college students nationally had indicated they would not go back to their institution. Yeah. I think that's a high number, but it indicates there's at least a a certain considerable percentage that will not go back to school. and They'll either study remotely, and therefore the college or university won't get the room and board money that they're used to getting, or they may not go back at all, and then they don't get any of the money they're used to getting. So Mm -hmm. there's going to be a significant top-line decrease in revenue for universities.
1: Well, we only have a couple of minutes left and we haven't yet talked about the the other sort of major vein of your experience, which is with the college sports and the NCAA and others. So could we spend a couple of minutes talking about the experience of athletes, whether they're they are elite or you know, just college level athletes in general through this? How are schools looking at sports in COVID-19? Yeah,
0: there's been widely reported on. The vast majority of schools are not conducting fall sports. They may be conducting practices or some other activity for their teams, but they believe the risks involved in a sport like football, which is a contact sport, or even soccer, where you come in close contact with people, are too much. And they also worried about things like travel and working out and lifting weights and all the things that you usually associate with athletics. So if you look at Division Three, the NCAA division that does not give athletic scholarships, Almost all of them are not doing fall sports. Division two, it's the majority are not doing. That's the schools that offer some athletic scholarships, but not a lot. I'd say the majority are not competing this fall. Some are. And division one, where you it's a, they, give full, they give full scholarships and other kinds of athletic scholarships, it's a much more mixed bag, and people who focused a great deal on the Power Five conferences, we officially called the Autonomous Five conferences, but the, most, the biggest and most divisible conferences. The, the Big Ten, the Big Twelve, the Pac-12, the ACC, and the SEC, mm-hmm. and they're split. So far the, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are not having fall sports as originally planned and the other three are still sticking by it. A common sense approach would tell you that it's much too dangerous to do college sports, and, and I think Well, I haven't talked to every public health official in the country, but most of them think it's too dangerous. You can see that also playing out in high school sports. But there are some, and some who I admire a lot, who think you can control the atmosphere enough, a kind of mini bubble the way the NBA has been doing their bubble, that you can control the bubble enough that you might be able to protect them. The University of Michigan, for example, did that over the summer uh, with their football team and had no positive tests out of I think, 18,000 or some number of tests, no, 1,800 rather, number of tests they'd taken. And I don't think they had any positive. But I think common sense and, and uh, most of the public health advice would be it's too dangerous. Some may persist in doing it. There was a football game on Saturday between Central Arkansas and Austin Pay. They, these are not two top-of-mind football powers that they played on ESPN because it was, I, I presume it would the only game they could find to televise. But if I were betting on it, I don't think – I think before these – Sports really engage a number of other conferences are going to decide they can't do it. It's just in the case of North Carolina, where they told everybody to go home except for international students, at risk students, and athletes, it just looks hypocritical. Right. And so, if I were a betting person, maybe I can finish this with two bets one on college athletics and one on. On overall colleges. I think in college athletics, I would guess that even more conferences will decide that it's too dangerous to play in the fall. And the over, I, I generally tell people when they ask me what do I think the odds of completing the fall semester, I, I tell them that in, in betting parlance, the over under is Columbus Day or. Hmm. Indigenous Peoples Day, if you prefer that. It's early in October. We'll know how many schools are really going to be able to continue to operating residence. And I'd be betting the under if I were involved. Much as I would hope for a full academic year in residence, I just think that's. As I said earlier, everybody can have their own opinion about this. I think it's right. it's going to be unlikely. When I was active with the NCAA, just one point on that, when I was active with the NCAA, I used to say Harrison's first rule is coaches always want to coach and players always want to play. And so, you know, I think it's natural that they want to be there. And I think the really hard position that presidents and boards of trustees have right now is what's in their best interest, not what they think is in their best interest, but what's in their best interest.
1: So Walt, a last Best question place to be. <laughs> Exactly. A last question for you today, Walt, and it's sort of a broad one, so I apologize, but how do you feel higher education has changed through this pandemic? In other words, what has this disease forced, accelerated, or maybe hampered in terms of the evolution of education in this country?
0: I just read a, an article yesterday that was saying that, you know, we've made a lot of short-term adjustments in higher education. Distance learning is probably the the most dramatic change. We are forced into it. We're now, I think, getting better and better at it. Faculty all over the country have been taking courses or webinars or whatever over the summer to try to learn how to be better online teachers. So I think the one thing that will definitely emerge from this is, is much more emphasis on online teaching. Probably more of a hybrid model because I think there is a, I think it's a terrific and really unusual and wonderful tradition in the United States to be in residence. Being a residential student at a university is not only intellectually important, but it's also socially important. It's a great socialization experience, and has been since at least for 150 years. Right. So I think that I think there will be a change in online learning. I wonder about the actual resident hall experience and other kinds of experiences, whether that might change. And the article I read was arguing that in higher education, we should be thinking about permanent changes and not just adapting to this pandemic. And so if people follow that, I think you'll see more emphasis on online learning and and a different kind of approach. My personal view, one of the quick things that I would like to see universities wrote, I think this gives us an opportunity to focus on something that our critics have, uh, have talked about for a long time, why don't we operate in a year-round mode? Hmm. We can teach all year round. The rest of the world goes to school or goes to work all year round. So I think you might see that emerge from this and kinds of curricular or structural changes like the one I was describing with shorter semesters. Those things might become more of the norm and less of the, just an initial response to a
1: pandemic. Well, well, as you said that, and I can guess that all the eighteen to twenty-two year olds listening to this were shuddering at the thought of year-round education. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they wouldn't. They might not have to go year-round. I, you know, I've always wondered why you couldn't just say pick the two semesters you want to go, and then somehow incentivize people to go for the summer semester. Yeah, maybe it's, you know it's less expensive if you go in the summer, and that would lead to being able. This is something I've thought about for years. Why? There are a few special fields where you can't condense the material much. Engineering the one that really stands out to mm-hmm. me. But aside from that, most of the other fields, you could condense them down to be able to complete them within three years. And that takes, that's a quarter. You know, if you do this the right way, you might reduce the cost of education by a quarter.
1: That's a and,
0: and why not? You know, I mean, I, I don't I don't really understand the, why you could, you could do the same thing with faculty. You pick the two. And then get, again, you could incentivize them somehow to teach in the summer, at least initially, while right. it was
1: still the
0: change. I would if you're asking me, I would if I were still in, in the presidency, I'd really you know, look very hard at that.
1: <laughs> very interesting. Well, Walt, on behalf of all of us at Long River Wealth Management, my partners, Tom Lips, Andrew Worthington, Ashley Martella, Paula Johnson, and the entire team, thank you for spending a few minutes with us today. And thanks for everything that you're continuing to do in support of higher education in this country.
0: Thanks. I really believe in higher education as the road to not only prosperity, but also to living a better life. And I'm glad I can be helpful.